And welcome once again to another edition of A Plain Answer here at Redeemer Broadcasting. I'm Dan Elmendorf. On the Skype line with us today is Jerry Wiss. He's an advisor here at Redeemer Broadcasting and a writer for Christian Renewal Magazine and other publications, principal of GW Communications, which provides public relations and marketing services to financial and technology companies. Jerry, it's an honor to have you on with us today. Thanks for having me on, Dan. It's great to be with you. You know, you've spent some time studying the Old Testament wisdom literature, the uh, Solomonic texts, etc., and you've been a conference speaker on them and other topics. Today, let's talk about the Song of Solomon, this interesting book in the Old Testament. And um, it's long been considered a kind of allegory about the relationship between Christ and his church, at least that's the way it's been presented. Can you uh, get us started today? Well, yes, Dan. It's um, God does often speak to us in pictures uh, in the scriptures. Um, I mean, think of the sacraments, for example, and the Song of Solomon is another example. Um, this doesn't mean it wasn't uh, really a song celebrating uh, the king's courtship of this young Shulamite woman. Uh, and every culture uh, has its love poetry. But there's something even more significant uh, beyond that. It's, it's a common understanding <clears throat> held by the church, really, uh, for the most part since its inception, that the lovers we find here uh, in this ancient poem, but also song, are um, divinely creative expressions of the church and her Lord, our Lord Jesus Christ. It's a, a beautiful relationship, one of, uh, if you read it uh, through, and it's, I encourage your readers to do that, it's a short book in the Old Testament, um, a beautiful relationship, one of um, your audience, <laughs> not your readers, one of crazy infatuation, uh, of betrothal, uh, of pining, and also of marriage and consummation. And yet, like all relationships, it can get complicated. How is this relationship between this young woman in the song and her suitor similar to our relationship with the Lord? Well, we see uh, in the prophets how the Lord is a kind of suitor courting his beloved, who is and always has been his betrothed. Uh, she belongs to him, but she goes after others. She ignores him. Uh, she comes to him only when she's in trouble. Her heart is divided. She loves him, but she needs him more than loves him. And um, his love for her, however, is unshaken. It's constant, really quite inventive in how he gets her attention so that uh, she will return to him. We learn much about the character of God and what kind of character um, we as men, as husbands should and can have toward our beloved. We can't read, you know, uh, Dan, very far into the prophets without noticing that our God is a wooing God. Uh, he doesn't give up easily either. And his methods, um, <laughs> he, he does have his methods. He, he blesses and shows favor, but he also disciplines us for our good. He knows exactly where and how hard to press to get our attention. Um, 
to pull and to push at just the right strength and at the right time so that we move along in our sanctification, in our fruit bearing, so, um, so that whatever occurs in our lives we know is ultimately for our good, as the Lord defines good. The Song of Solomon, or the Song of Songs, however, is unique in that its perspective is not so much that of the Lord as wooer and lover, although we do see some highly memorable expressions of his love for his own. It's uh, principally uh, from the perspective of the wooed, the young Shulamite with whom the king is so taken. So it's her perspective um, showing really the perspective of the church, the called out ones through the ages of how she thinks, how she feels, how her delight in him is wonderfully ecstatic, but also how she faces and endures through challenges in regard to her lover. Yeah, um, challenges. Uh, Our relationship with the Lord sometimes is not, uh, what can I say, not an easy one, and it's because of me, not him. Um, can you speak? <laughs> can you speak to some of the challenges that that the Shulamite faces in regard to her suitor, um, similar to what we may face in our relationship with the Lord? Well, before we get too far into that, and <clears throat> I I'd, I'd like to uh, look at that a little bit more closely, but you know, just historically, um, first of all, she is a Shulamite of the sons of Issachar. Um, Nobody special, not from a great or noble house. She um, she tells us that she has no vineyard of her own, but tends another's vineyard, perhaps pointing to the gospel coming to the Gentiles, those who would be engrafted um, into Israel, those who would be given a vineyard. She's swarthy or dark. She uh, works outdoors in the hot sun. So there are no palace niceties for her, not yet. <laughs> We learn um, at the close of the song, however, that as a result of being chosen by the king as wife, she eventually does get a vineyard of her own. And the interesting thing, you know, delightfully is that she doesn't even keep its proceeds, uh, but gives all of its fruit and any earned income from it to the great king at the close of the song, which um, who is not only now at this point her lover, but her her husband. She seems to be very much wanting to please her husband. She is crazy about him. And he, when he's uh, around, is crazy about her, (laughs) complimenting her on her beauty. Um, He says she's perfect. She's without flaw. And, you know, here, uh, this points ultimately, Dan, to the holiness of the church and every uh, individual believer in the sight of the almighty God just because of the Lord Jesus Christ, um, who not only suffered the just punishment for all of our sins, but because he did, has um, had his perfect righteousness imputed to us, his obedience made into ours, uh, and his loveliness and perfections credited to us as though they are our own. So so that when the Lord looks upon you or me, he sees not our specks and sins, though we may have more holes than a slab of Swiss cheese, <laughs> but, but he sees the Lord Jesus Christ himself in his perfect sacrifice, in his 
perfect obedience as the second Adam and in his glorious, um, divinely resplendent humanity. Any other challenges in the relationship that come to mind, uh, similar to what we would have with the Lord? Well, the relationship uh, does get complicated. Um, so we we live in Coram Deo, always in the presence of God. But, uh, you know, if we were, were honest, we know that it doesn't always feel that way. And um, the young Shulamite shows us how that's so for the people of God as well. There are... Um, two places where she loses sight of her lover, and so she goes out looking for him. One is in chapter 3, and there she says, I sought him but found him not. So she goes into the city streets and squares asking for him, and then suddenly, "Ah, there he is. She found him, and she's delighted to have found him. I, I held him, she says, and would not let him go. And she loses sight then again, she loses sight of him again in chapter five, but that's uh, somewhat different. He comes to her rapping on her door, open to me, my sister, my love, my dove, my perfect one. And for some reason, she delays in answering him and the lovers are somehow miscued or mistimed. And um, finally, she rises to uh, open the door, but by the time she does, he's already gone. So, you know, why didn't she open the door when he first knocked on it? And we're told in verse 6 of chapter 5, my soul failed me when he spoke. That's what she says. (laughs) And so she um, goes in search of him again. I sought him, but found him not. I called him, but he gave no answer. Um, And, you know, the Lord... Uh, knocks on a door in John's Revelation. So the image is consistent between Testaments. In Revelation 3 and verse 20, the Lord knocks at the door of the church in Laodicea, saying if they open to him, he'll come and eat with them, and they with him, enjoying that intimate fellowship that is there and available uh, for the people of God. The um, Laodicean church you know, you'll remember Dan was rebuked by the Lord for its lukewarmness, a kind of spiritual yeah. indifference. <clears throat> and um, it arose because their hearts were in other places. Uh, the Shulamite didn't open to her lover when he knocked. My soul failed me when he spoke, she says. And she says this after he leaves. <laughs> her heart, you see, is in another place mm. or was in another place. Yeah. And finally, when she's uh, uh, roused or rouses herself, um, knowing that's what she should have done all along to open the door, he was gone. And mm. That's when things really get desperate for her. She, she goes into town and looking for him. But this time the city watchmen beat her, bruise her, and take away her veil. Um, and she doesn't find him suddenly, immediately, as she had in chapter 3. In fact, there's no closure to the incident at all. It just ends, Um, and the scene changes entirely in the next chapter. We see the lovers there united again, together, enamored with each other, but it's an entirely different scene. So in that new scene, the king there in chapter 6 compliments her again, um, and her response is, Uh, In chapter six, she says this, I went down to the nut orchard 
to look at the blossoms of the valley to see whether the vines had budded, whether the pomegranates were in bloom. So you see, now in his presence, quieted, no longer desperate, her, um, her concern is fruitfulness, looking for the flowering signs of fruit about to be born. So her concern now, you see, um, is his concern for her. Well, that's neat. Um, today we're talking about the Song of Solomon with uh, Jerry Wiss. Jerry spent some time in studying the Old Testament wisdom literature, the Solomonic texts. He's been a conference speaker on them and other topics. Uh, Jerry, as we move on, um, any other key comparisons now between their relationship and our own with the Lord? Our God is the God who is there and is not silent. There are seasons, though, when we don't feel as though he is. And that may be because he's testing us, or uh, it may be because of unrepented sin. Uh, The Westminster Confession attempts to get a handle on these times of seeming divine silence, uh, seeming distance, uh, the seeming distance of God among his people. In the Confessions chapter on Providence, it says, and I'm quoting, um, the most wise, righteous, and gracious God uh, doth oftentimes leave for a season his own children to manifold temptations and the corruption of their own hearts to chastise them for their former sins or to discover unto them the hidden strength of corruption and deceitfulness of their hearts, that they may be humbled and to raise them to a more close and constant dependence for their support upon himself and to make them more watchful against all future occasions of sin. So, you know, the truth is, Dan, God is never silent, that he is always there. If our hearts condemn us, he's uh, greater than our hearts, and we should remember that. Some may question if we really search for God, um, as the young Shulamite went in search for her lover. Um, isn't it really that he comes to us? You know, C.S. Lewis said, uh, to say we search for God is like saying a mouse is looking for a cat. Um, God initiates, certainly, but part of the process of that is his drawing us and through different means. He tells us in uh, Jeremiah that we will find him if we search for him with all our hearts. It's it's the Lord who makes that possible, but it's we who are actually doing it. Today we're talking about the Song of Solomon, and Jerry, one of the thoughts that came to my mind was uh, this doesn't seem like a a reading for those who are of a pietistic mindset. Um, God is not afraid of spelling out a very physical relationship here in his word. And uh, it may shock some people um, coming to the Bible and realizing that uh, this stuff is in the Bible and then make, <laughs> and then making the connections like you're doing, uh, like God has intended. But, you know, the, the very... Uh, very simple facts of, of, of what's said here could actually shock some people. So that, anyway, I couldn't resist just throwing that in. <laughs> um, so, Jerry, there's a portion in this text where she asks them not to stir up or awaken love. Um, what's that all about? Well, um, there are other voices in, in the Song of Solomon, the Daughters of Jerusalem, uh, that function as a, a sort of chorus 
And this is obviously, a uh, well, it's a poetic device throughout the poem, kind of like a chorus in a song, you might say. This is a song, after all. It also is a reminder that this is a courtship, at least until chapters six and seven, when the courtship becomes a marriage. And when we encountered um, language like the daughters of Jerusalem and other parts of the Bible, they're generally symbolic of Israel itself, the people of God, especially in the Old Testament. Um, the young women, the virgins, would gather during Israel's festivals to sing or chant. And in its way, this is representative of Israel herself keeping holiday, time of festival, of joy, of holy remembrance. Um, we can't say when it comes to, uh, they when she's the Shulamite is adjuring uh, the daughters of Jerusalem not to awaken love. We can say that there's a timing issue involved here that um, the Messiah will come at the right time. And remember the Lord in 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 the Gospels saying, for example, um, that this that his time had not yet come, or how he would adjure people he healed, telling them not to say anything about it. So this this has to do with timing, the right time for the right revelation. And, you know, Dan, it may also signal something else, something quite endearing. Um, the church has gone through different seasons in its history, times when corporate worship and organization were paramount, and times when personal devotion was more so. But the truth is, both are important. No right. man is an island. You know, we, we discover our faith along with others in the church, through worship, fellowship, kingdom work. But also important is our own relationship with God, our, our prayer life, our drawing near, so he may draw near to us. Um, often the Shulamite adjures the daughters of Jerusalem, telling them not to wake the king mm. because he is asleep and holding her in his arms. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, her yeah. adjuration is kind of a leave us alone. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, Solomon Solomon says in Proverbs 14, um, the heart knows its own bitterness and a stranger does not intermeddle with its joy. Um, our brethren can empathize with us in our pain but can never really know it. Um, our brethren can share our joy but not experience it themselves. But you see, the Lord not only empathizes, but knows our pain. Mm. And he not only shares our joy, but actually, I would say, experiences it along with us mm -hmm. since he's the author of it. Um, this imagery of the bridegroom and the bride, it doesn't only appear here. It, it seems to be pretty much throughout Scripture. Yes, and from Genesis to Revelation, lots of places in between, Psalm 45 in the Gospels, the seven virgins waiting for the bridegroom, keeping their lamps lit lest they miss him, um, Paul to the Ephesians, and of course John's revelation. It started with the first Adam, made in God's image, for whom the Lord created a compliment, a helpmeet to help him take dominion of the garden and eventually the world. And we know how that story turned out. But that's also a picture you see of Christ and his church. He's, he's the head, we're the body, the helpmeet. Mm -hmm. You know, the hands, the feet, the mouths. He plants, we bring forth. And um, in Psalm 45, um, the bride, because she's uh, to wed the great king, 
um, is promised intergenerational continuity, dominion through her issue, and um, international fame and praise. Uh, so, you know, we see the bride finally in John's revelation. Here's John, old and doddering, exiled on a tiny island off the coast of Greece. And uh, we know that the church is being persecuted. God's people are being harassed, even murdered. And we know, too, that there are problems within the churches, as the letters to the churches earlier in Revelation indicate, heterodoxy, antinomianism, materialism, and greed. But, you know, as part of his kaleidoscopic vision, he sees an angel approaching, and the angel says to John, hey, John, come here, I want to show you something. And (laughs) let me show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. (laughs) Well, you know, that's the church. And what does John see? He doesn't see a slab of Swiss cheese with holes in it. Mm. Um, he sees something he can barely describe. It's a city, the New Jerusalem. It's not the old Jerusalem locked on a piece of real estate, mm-hmm. uh, you know, from which sacrifices were offered up into heaven. It's the New Jerusalem coming to the earth, extraordinarily, even jaw-droppingly beautiful, impressive, stately, decked with every conceivable jewel and precious stone, not unlike the young Shulamite with her jewels in the Song of Songs or Mm. or the bride in her golden tresses in Psalm 45. And, um, you know, there, you know, I think it's Revelation 21, uh, it said, by the light of this city shall the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. Mm. It's uh, magnificent. It's it's about 1,400 miles in circumference, so the measurement translates, no city in the history of the world is bigger, not even today. <laughs> yeah, that's neat. Um, in fact, it transcends all the cities of men. Mm. You know, it can be found today in, in all cities, New York, Los Angeles, Tokyo, Paris, London, Roma, which is what, <laughs> you know, that's what's being communicated there in Revelation 21, mm. is bigger than that. But also in other cities today, Beijing, Istanbul, Cairo, Nairobi. So, John, you know, don't be glum. The best is yet to be. (laughs) We've got about uh, two minutes left. And uh, to some of you out there today, it may seem a little odd talking about how our relationship with the Lord is like that of a bride and her husband, uh, particularly for the men in the audience. What is this? I'm considered a bride. You know, what is this? But um, that's what comes out here as we look at life through the lens of Scripture, isn't it, Jerry? Well, you know, I don't know if men can relate to this, but I know women can. It's it's hard not to cry or at least tear up <laughs> at weddings. Yeah. Um, you know, here's this young lady yesterday in jeans, her hair a little must, not much makeup on, going about her errands and her stuff. But today, just look at her in that wonderfully exquisite gown her hair and beautiful tresses, her face beaming with joy as she walks down the aisle toward her husband-to-be. And, you know, we look at her and we say, she's beyond beautiful. She's resplendent. Mm. And, uh, you know, our eyes follow her. We can't take our eyes off her as she walks toward the man who will be her husband. And he's there waiting for her with anticipation to mm. receive her. So delighted he is in her, so taken with her beauty. It's her day. She's the guest of honor, the center of attention. And, um, you know, after all the hugs and kisses and handshakes and after the reception, the two of them are gone. 
and you won't see them for a while. They're crazy about each other. <laughs> yeah, it's so true. So what does the Lord say about her, about the bride, the church of the living God? Well, in the Song of Songs, here are a few things he says. He says, Behold, you are beautiful, my beloved, truly delightful. You have captured my heart, my sister, my bride. You have captivated my heart with one glance of your eyes, with one jewel of your necklace. Or here's another one. You are beautiful as Terza, my love, lovely as Jerusalem. You're awesome. <laughs> now, we yeah. may ask, yeah, well, how awesome? <laughs> yeah. Well, and he answers like an army of banners. That's that's pretty awesome. Yeah. Or uh, or this one. Um, oh, you who dwell in the gardens with companions listening for your voice, let me hear it. So you see, this is what the Lord, our God, says about the church. And he's crazy about the church in a manner of speaking. And um, the question really is, are we crazy about him? Yeah. Amen. No, no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor has it entered into the heart of man the things that God has prepared for those that love him. And we love him because he loved us first. That's, that's key. That's, that's not key. It's um, uh, certainly, you know, that's, that's how it works. But our, we love him because he loved us first. And that's the genuine motivation for obedience. Well, that's been very rich. Jerry Wiss is our guest today, writer for Christian Renewal and other publications, principal of GW Communications. And Jerry, I want to thank you so much for joining us today. My pleasure, Dan. Always a pleasure. And um, thanks for having me. And dear listener, please join us next week for another edition of A Plain Answer. <laughs> 